and welcome to the Intro to Drama podcast. This week's episode covers some of the context behind our next play, Chisa Hutchinson's Whitelisted. You can choose to listen to this episode before or after you read the play, and it will hopefully give you some good things to think about as you read. Let's get started. So thank you for coming to the whitelisted context lecture that we're giving, that I'm giving today, um, whether you're in the Zoom call with me now or watching this later after the fact. Um, so this is, so whitelisted is a play by Chisa Hutchinson and we're just gonna be talking about what's going on. We're gonna be hitting several different points in this lecture. Um, first, I wanna sort of give some context for this lecture itself. Um, that feels like a necessary thing to do. Then I'm gonna talk a little bit about our playwright, Chisa Hutchinson. And then I'm going to talk about the development and the production history, which is very, very minimal of this play. I'm going to talk a little about the setting and I'm going to um, hit on some themes that we're gonna read about in this play. And then we're gonna wrap up. So I want to begin by acknowledging that we are discussing a play that deals explicitly, like it doesn't deal with police violence, but it deals with police corruption and arrogance um, and other, elements that go into creating an unsafe environment um, for all Americans, but, ex but ex express, especially, excuse me, for Black Americans. And I want to acknowledge that we are talking about that after summer 2020, when we've had this like massive um, sort of national conversation that has still not really come to anything because the cops who killed Breonna Taylor were not charged. And we are just dealing with that sort of at this moment, and I think that's worth saying. Um, and I also want to put it out there that if I stumble in any way and do anything that you feel is not appropriate, I would be really grateful if you were able to come to me and have that conversation. I would be really grateful um, to better serve you as students and the world as, you know, a white girl. Um, I'd love to have those conversations if you feel safe doing so. And hopefully, you know, I'll navigate everything nicely, but if I don't, I would be grateful to, to hear. Um, and also, so I'm going to get into some themes of this play that I've already sort of touched on. I'm not going to get into those super, super deeply because I think they're sort of part of the national conversation and they'll sort of naturally come up as we are talking. But anyway, when I do get into those themes, you might be saying to yourself, like, yes, I know. And that's all right. I'm just sort of saying, you know, I'm putting us here. I'm contextualizing the play. I'm saying this is where we are. And this is what we're looking at with this play. Um, but I will be going into as well, sort of information that we don't know about Hutchinson and about whitelisted the play and about the actual setting. So with all of that, with that sort of context laid out for where this lecture is going, um, we're gonna start talking about Chisa Hutchinson. So Hutchinson is a black American woman playwright. Um, she's born 1980, so she's about 40. Honestly, I think she's a little brilliant. I've been reading interviews with her and um, seeing videos of interviews of her, with her. She's very well-spoken. She's got a very funny sort of light tone that I'll actually read you some quotations from her um, because I thought her writing was so engaging. I didn't, I felt like I didn't have, I was like, I don't, I can't say it better than she did. Like I can't summarize this. So we're gonna actually use her voice in this lecture um, because I think she's a really wonderful writer. I wanna point out as well that she identifies as bisexual. Um, I think it's also important to acknowledge queer writers and sort of have people who can be that representation for other um, other queer writers, um, black queer writers, um, and of course she's 
you know, just having a black woman we can look to is also important as a writer. She also has um, a diagnosis of MS, of multiple sclerosis. Um, so she's also a prolific, talented writer um, with this chronic illness. So we don't want to tokenize Hutchinson by any means, but I think she, it is important to acknowledge that she has many different pieces to her identity, um, many of which could be sites of oppression, um, which I'm sure she does face, you know, and she, and she is also able to be this amazingly prolific, successful writer. This is the front page of her website. Um, I, again, I was just so, I was so like excited by her jokes um, because this is her home page and she goes, she's a Hutchinson. She writes stuff and occasionally butt models, um, which is so cute. And she did apparently in this like circa 2008 JCPenney, I have no idea if it's JCPenney, but it looks like a JCPenney catalog to me. Um, and I just think that's such a charming joke that that's what she is presenting to people who have, or have come to her website for the first time. And then she gets into, um, we'll go back to here. She gets into more specific, um, like actually this is what I'm doing, but that's her website. I wanted to show you that. Um, and I actually wanted to read you, I'll go over to her website now because I just wanted to read you her biography from her website um, because it's all very well put and it gives a very good overview and it's also what she wants us to think about her. Um, so I'm gonna respect that. And she says, Chisa was born in Queens, New York to young irresponsible parents. She spent the majority, majority of her formative years under the care of a much more responsible but chronically broke woman who was technically her godfather's mother, but who would later, in the fine it takes a village tradition of the broken family, simply become Ma. Chisa grew up in the company of what seemed like hundreds of unofficially adopted brothers and sisters in Newark, New Jersey, where she excelled in school and philosophized with cockroaches about the ultimate merits of poverty. Her favorite six-legged pest, who called himself Swifty on account of his uncanny ability to elude the bottom of any shoe, once told her with a wistful chuckle, one day you will be able to look back and romanticize all this shit. That day appeared on the horizon of Jesus' future when, at 14, she got a scholarship to what she thought was a boarding school. It turns out, turns out however, that having more than one building, indeed having a campus, does not a boarding school make. Chisa was naive and probably should have read the brochures more carefully. So she moved about 10 miles and a whole galaxy away from Newark to Short Hills to live with a host family comprised of a quirky Buddhist psychologist, her then husband, a nature-loving piano-playing Jew, their three kids, and an ancient dog named Babu. It was a rough transition, but one which has nevertheless shaped Chisa and her writing for the better. Probably. A couple more awesome supportive parents and several scholarships later, Chisa has earned a BA in Dramatic Arts from Vassar College and an MFA in Playwriting from NYU. She's landed some pretty cool gigs since then, such as writing and performing with the New York Neo-Futurists and being a staff writer for Blue Man Group. As she tends to write plays about underrepresented folks that require a minimum of five actors, she doubts very much that you'll see any of her plays on Broadway anytime soon, but encourages you to support the intrepid companies that have presented her work, which include the Lark Play Development Center, City Park Summer Stage, the New York Neo-Futurists, Partial Comfort, Mad Dog Productions, Atlantic Theater Company, the New Jersey Performing Arts Center, New Dramatists, Rattlestick Theater, Midtown Direct Rep, Writers Theater of New Jersey, the New Jersey Performing Arts Center, the Working Theater, Project Y, the Contemporary American Theater Festival, National Black Theater, Second Stage Theater, Delaware Rep, Salt Lake Acting Company, Red Twist Theater, Ford Flux, Arc 468, Primary Stages, South Coast Rep, King Company, Audible, Penumbra Theater, Film Gym, Proshen Pro Films, Lifetime, Sony Pictures, Paramount Pictures, and Walt Disney Studios. Presently, Chisa teaches creative writing at the University of Delaware, is working on three film projects, and is tiptoeing through her final year of residency at New Dramatists. 
So she's been a bit busy, is what we're saying. Um, just amazingly prolific writer for both stage and film. Um, and if you do want to check out her website, it's just what comes up when you Google her name. Um, it's really a fun, fun one to click around and see what she's working on. She sort of writes about issues that are not like the sort of standard white American middle class, like what the white American middle class sees when they go to theater, um, expects to see because they, because white middle class Americans expect to see themselves reflected back when they go to the theater. And Chisa Hutchinson is breaking that and saying like, let's look at the stories that we're not telling. And so I've got some quote quotations from her um, that I thought were pretty enlightening and sort of gave a kind of map of her thoughts of her playwriting process. So when she speaks about her experience in undergrad at Vassar, um, she is talking about the way that she wanted to read works from Black writers and sort of get into this, um, this realm of Black theater, and that wasn't really an option. So she says, but apart from one course offered by the Africana Studies program, there was no real space for Black students to explore texts by Black writers. So I wrote my own. I concentrated in playwriting, and most of my coursework was independent. Ultimately, unfortunately, I got plenty of support from the department once I decided what I wanted to do, but I was still decidedly on the fringes. Um, and this is a shame that she had to be on the fringes at her own undergrad. And that's something that I think colleges um, in, in general and VCU in specific are working hard to remedy. And I think especially Dr. T in our department is working um, with Sharon and working with the rest of the faculty and we are working to have a more inclusive um, department. But I also just wanted to point this out that while hopefully Hutchinson's experience at Vassar is not the same as your experience at BCU, like I just want to offer that representation of going out and doing the work that's important to you. And I think that's, that's something that like that's a place that salt can be for students. But again, hopefully we'll just see where everything is going. But this was Hutchinson's experience. She also talks about her ideas of actually talking about social issues because it's important to her to speak about social issues in her plays. And she goes, the best way to write a play about a social issue is to not make it about a social issue. To take my last play, Dead and Breathing, in which there is a transgender nurse, I focus on what she's doing as a nurse in her life. She's interacting with this woman who once she finds out her nurse is transgender, puts the fuck out, but the play isn't about that. It's about their relationship and the challenges they're facing individually and together, just human shit. So if you can just human it up and just focus on emotional personal stuff and some of the audiences can relate to, then they won't mind so much that you suck in some social agenda into the play. Um, and this makes me think a little about David Ball's idea in Tricks of the Trade about focus on the families because it's these familial relationships that are really going to snag audiences. And that's what Hutchinson's doing. Um, she wants to work on the human relationships in order to get people in. And then she wants people to be thinking about social issues, but she's not just going to write like, the woke play. Um, she's going to be writing a story about these relationships and to be working on these other issues. And she and I really love this quote where she acknowledges almost the limitations of art, um, but also how, but also it's sort of our chosen lane as people who study, who are studying art and studying theater. So it's pretty powerful. She says, I spent a lot of time thinking, I wish I were better at anything else. I'm not a politician. I'm not a lawyer, an economist. I don't know how to fix big stuff. I feel like someone handed me a shoelace and said, okay, build a rocket ship. Words, that's what I got, words. It's what I have. But if, if change doesn't happen, it won't be for my lack of trying, even if all I have to offer is words. 
I'm going to try every which way to, to wield those words to see what they can produce, what ripples they can make. So Hutchinson is an artist who is trying to bring about social change um, and it's working with the vehicle she has. And I think a lot of us can probably relate to that. So I wanted to include that as well. So we're going to move on to the development and production history of this play. So in 2019, um, maybe in 2018, the South Coast Repertory Theater commissioned this play from Hutchinson um, and then presented it as a staged reading at the 2019 Pacific Playwrights Festival. So the South, so South Coast Rep is a pretty cool um, theater. They're pretty committed to new play development um, they, and sort of producing new plays. They have produced over 525 new plays in their last 55 seasons. Um, so they are no strangers to new plays and they're pretty excited about this, this amount of new work. Um, this festival happens every year and they highlight new plays. At this particular festival, um, fun fact, was also playwright Queen Nguyen, who wrote uh, She Kills Monsters that we're putting on virtually this semester, which is really exciting. And the mission statement of the South Coast Rep, they are committed to community, they're committed to social, they're committed to social issues. And yeah, they say that they want to use theater to illuminate the human experience. So you can really see how Hutchinson um, is a playwright that this theater would really resonate with. Um, and you can see why they created that sort of artistic relationship there. Now, Whitelisted was slated to have its world premiere actually this past July at the Contemporary American Theater Festival, which is held every year at Shepherd University. And unfortunately, of course, that didn't happen um, because of the plague. So CATF is really cool and is a, would have been a really wonderful place for Hutchinson's work to premiere. I've put up their mission statement here as well. So their mission is just to produce and develop new American theater. They want to provide their audiences with the ultimate theater experience, um, which actually a couple of my cousins who are like classic DC yuppies own a vacation house in West Virginia. This is so bougie of them. They're very ashamed of themselves too. I mean, in like a funny way. Um, not that you need to be ashamed if Anyway, we're, we're moving forward. So they're like, oh, I know, we're like, we're the yuppies, but they go to this festival every year. I think Hutchinson would really appreciate that like, these like kind of self-aware, hopefully self-aware, um, to rich people from DC, like go and see interesting American theater about, you know, different, like, you know, non-standard American plays. Um, I think they are Hutchinson's, they are one of her audiences. Um, and they go to CATF every year. They say it's, it is the ultimate theater experience. I've never been, I'm taking it from them. And their core values include fearless art, daring and diverse stories and a profound dynamic among the audience, the artist and the work. And it's this festival and you buy multiple tickets and you see multiple productions. And so it really does create this kind of in, intense community experience as an audience. Um, and so again, you can see how this is like a really, strong place for Hutchinson as an artist, right? She wants to tell daring and diverse stories. Um, her art is fairly fearless, right? She really does want to tell these stories that are going to get these, um, these characters and these people who aren't the norm and she wants to get them out there. Um, so it's a, good, it's a good fit with CATF and it's a shame that it couldn't happen this year. Um, I don't know what the plan is if they're going to be reproducing the play next year or the year after. So that'll be really interesting to watch for. 
some, some more interesting facts about CATF that I thought were pretty cool is it's established in 1991. It's as old as me. And also they make a point to keep gender parity in their playwrights. So they have 50% of their playwrights are women, which is pretty cool because that is not the national standard for how many playwrights are women and how many playwrights are men. It's more of a male dominated field. Uh, in 2017, they had 5,500 attendees. They're a Lord D equity house. And yeah, they are in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. And yes, so before I move on, I want to include one last section, which is this quote, this um, summary of whitelisted from Hutchinson's website. So this is not necessarily like the press release that goes out when a theater does whitelisted because the, the press releases from CATF and from the South Coast Rep, they're very different. But Hutchinson describes whitelisted as a revenge horror play commissioned by South Coast Rep. And she goes, Rebecca Burgess is just living her life when weird supernatural shit starts happening to her for no reason she can think of. Of course, the fact that she can't think of the reason is probably why it's happening. I love how evocative this description is. I think it is a much tighter and well-written and enlightening blurb than any of the other theaters have done. So now we're going to talk about the setting, which is, Hutchinson gets really specific. It's bed which is a neighborhood in Brooklyn. It's in 2018. And so often in contemporary plays, the setting for the year might be something like around now or modern or you know something like that um we might see dates more often in a past play but this takes a modern date and sets it in 2018 and this also gets really specific with neighborhood and so i was thinking to myself why is this play getting so specific with the setting um, and that's where i really spent a lot of time sort of going down this rabbit hole so i'm going to bring us in through some maps so we have just so we can all be on the same page geographically speaking. So we have the US, we're looking at New York. We're in the um, you know, Northeast Coast. And again, looking at New York, we're gonna be looking right around down here. Yeah, we're looking at New York City, this area of New York, so we're sort of narrowing in. And when we're looking at New York City itself, so that's that little piece of New York that we were just pointing to. New York City is divided into five boroughs, right? We've got the Bronx, we've got Manhattan, we've got Queens, we've got Staten Island, and we've got Brooklyn, where our play is set. So these boroughs were established in 1898 when modern New York was founded. Um, before then, they were sort of more autonomous, and now they're all part of the city. So Brooklyn, in fact, it's its own county, Kings County, which is the most populous county in New York State. I think the second most densely populated county in the United States at all. So it's got a really, really dense population. Um, and yeah, it's the most populous borough in New York City. I think it's got something like, I think this number is from 2018, I'm not sure, 2,648,403 residents. And in this amazingly populous county, it's also the fourth smallest county by land area. So it's like a super, super dense population, really tiny with lots of people. And one reason that we're looking at Brooklyn in particular is it's kind of seen as like the site of the hipsters. Um, I don't think we hear about the hipsters so much anymore, but I like when I was sort of coming up out of college and everything that was like 
the hipsters was all people were talking about. And it's this idea of like young, attractive, wealthy people who are sort of like, you know, edgy and hip. Um, and definitely with the air quotes, um, because the implication is they also have like trust funds or ridiculously well-paying jobs so they can afford to like, just like wear a beanie and bike around the city or whatever and drink expensive lattes. Um, and it's this idea of like these young, attractive hippie or not hippies, hipsters, like moving in to places that have, you know, a lot of character and ultimately they drive up rent. We're going to be talking about those specifics soon. And Brooklyn, more than any of the other boroughs, sort of has this face and this characteristic and this cultural vibe of a place that is being slash has been gentrified. So that's why we're looking at Brooklyn. So if we sort of narrow in one more time we've, and we're looking at Brooklyn itself, this is the neighborhood that we're looking at. Um, the full name is Bedford Stuyvesant, but Bedstoy is how it's abbreviated. So, and Bedstoy actually has the largest collection of Victorian architecture, I think, in the nation. Um, like just Victorian brownstones and architecture absolutely everywhere. Um, and I actually, at this point, at this point of the lecture, I'm going to start drawing some parallels between Bedstoy and Richmond, and between New York and Richmond, um, which I think are going to be particularly interesting and relevant, because now Richmond actually on Franklin Street, just off campus, Richmond has, I believe, the longest continuous stretch of Victorian architecture. Like, it's continuous without a modern building being put in. Um, I wonder if that changed actually with the construction they were doing. It, at least as of recently, it was true. So we have this sort of, so if you are walking around campus and you see these like vic gorgeous like Victorian homes, that's the kind of architecture you're seeing in Bedstoy as well. Yeah, so this is just an image of some of the brownstones in this neighborhood. So these just gorgeous old timey sort of row houses. And Bedstoy has a really interesting and specific history, which I think is why Hutchinson chose it for her play. So since the 1930s, Bedstoy has had a culturally African-American population. Harlem was really getting crowded and crowded and crowded. And so a lot of the Black individuals living in Harlem moved south and they landed in Bedstoy in Brooklyn because there were more opportunities for housing. And so by the 1930s, um, Bedstoy was the second largest Black community in New York City um, with about 30,000 Black individuals living there. By 1950, that had raised to about 150,000, and about 55% of the population was Black. And now, also in the 50s and 60s, we start to see, this is not just in Bedstoy, but it happens in Bedstoy, like it happens all over New York and all over other major metropolitan cities, um, this concept and this idea of white flight, which is essentially real estate agents were trying to get white people to sell their homes at a low rate so they could sell them for a higher rate, and they... And there was just sort of this push of being like, oh, look at all of the black residents in your neighborhood. Isn't it dangerous to live here? Which is, of course, manufactured. Um, but it leads to this white flight of white families moving to the suburbs. And then, of course, a lot of the infrastructure that is present in the cities, because white people are funding the cities that they live in, um, really starts to crumble after this point of the 50s and 60s. And we see it more focused in the suburbs areas, right? And so the, the black population of Bedstoy continues to grow and grow as, the, as white individuals sort of vacate their homes. Um, so by 1960, 85% of the population of Bedstoy is black. 
yeah, actually in, in the 1960s as well, um, newspapers actually called it Brooklyn's Little Harlem is sort of the, um, the reputation it's starting to get. And now in the 60s, the civil rights movement is happening in the US, right? And there are several, um, there are like years of protests and uprisings that of course in the history are called riots, um, which is just exactly what we're seeing now in Richmond and across the country, right? Is the, and these protests and these uprisings are in response to police violence and police killings of black individuals, just like we're seeing now. So Bed-Stuy in the 60s also gets this reputation for being this violent place because the rioters, right, the terrible rioters are there. And it's like, at then as now, it's not a conversation that a lot of people are willing to entertain with any um, empathy or nuance, right? So it's just, they're the rioters. So also in the 1960s with the civil rights movement, it wasn't all, you know, police violence because at this point, politicians and citizens of Bed-Stuy are also fighting gerrymandering. So right now, in the, or in, in the 1960s, there are five congressional districts in, that represent um, Bed-Stuy, and they all have white representatives. And it's, you know, an 85% black community. So it's just like, what is happening here? Um, but so actually, they're able to redraw the lines of the 12th congressional, um, congressional district. And Shirley Chisholm is elected, and she is the first African-American con congresswoman. Um, and she comes from this neighborhood. Um, so you see, you see like this like terrible struggle for equality and like sort of moving forward, still facing this police brutality. Um, and throughout the rest of the 20th century, unfortunately, Bedstoy is still often left out of federal funding. Um, so it's still a predominantly black, a predominantly black neighborhood, and it's still facing a lot of police violence. So we've got some things moving forward, other things are just sort of staying the same. Now, by the early 2000s, that's when we start to see gentrification. And I've got a lot of statistics here that I'll try and sort of say cohesively. But I, when, I've, when I've been reading about the gentrification of Bed-Stuy, there are some claims that there's, there's been less displacement of long-term, especially Black residents, um, than in other gentrified neighborhoods. I'm not sure if I've been able to see that stat multiple places. I don't know how true that sounds to me. Um, but I would want to look more into the data because I've only looked at like one or two sources at this point. Um, I do know that from 1990 to 2014, rent has increased in Bed-Stuy by about 36%, which is a little shocking. Um, Richmond is also facing um, increasingly sort of like shockingly raised rents, right? So again, I'm gonna I'm trying to keep this community with Richmond's community sort of in conversation. Um, so in 2008, the recession hit, right? There were like Bedstoy or Brooklyn, not so we're sort of zooming out again. Brooklyn actually, or no, excuse me, I misread my notes. So in Bedstoy, they had the second highest number of foreclosures of anybody in Brooklyn. So people are foreclosing on their homes after the 2008 recession left and right, and they're forced out of their homes because they can't, keep, can't afford to keep um, making those mortgage payments, right? And so we have this recession that's forcing people out of their homes. And at that same time, we have people coming in, business owners coming in and starting their businesses. By, I think since 2000, there's been a 73% increase in businesses within Bedstoy. So a sort of shopping increase of businesses. So we're bringing in a lot of jobs, we're bringing in a lot of revenue, a lot of economic good stuff, right? But we're really also seeing a lot of long-term residents being driven out 
so in 2010, 30% of Bedstoy residents struggled to make rent. I think by 2015, 55% of residents of Bedstoy have to devote more than 30% of their income to rent. And 30% is what I like ideally is the max you're gonna pay for rent, but that is a struggle for over half the residents of this neighborhood. And that's because of the raising rent prices because of these businesses coming in, right? And so many families, of course, have been evicted, have been forced to go into, um, into shelters, right? Because they don't have access to a home anymore. And it's a big problem. So homelessness and eviction, that's a big problem faced by long-term residents of Bedstoy. Now, I want to make another connection to Richmond because Richmond is, I forget what the statistic is, but we are, I think, one of the top five cities in the nation for eviction rate. Um, I think we have about a 12% eviction rate. New York City as a whole has a 1.6% eviction rate, and that's number of families who are evicted per 100, um, right? And so I couldn't find data for Bedstoy specifically or even for Brooklyn specifically, but so more people in New York are evicted than more people in Richmond are evicted, but people are more likely to be evicted in Richmond, if that makes sense. Um, and so, but we not, it's just both of these communities face a significant amount of homelessness. So in 2015, there is a study that looks at average income of residents of Bedstoy. So new residents have an average income of about $50,000. Um, so not like terribly much for New York City, right, but the long-term residents, their average income is $28,000. So on average, a new resident is making $20,000 more than a long-term resident. And we're starting, and we can see this in the way that long-term residents are slowly being forced out in this neighborhood. There are also, this will, I'll sort of mention this later, um, there are also above average rates of chronic illness within this neighborhood of New York. And, you know, I think that deals with environment, but also with medical racism. So it's not a super great neighborhood for long-term residents right now. So we've got a record number of businesses and jobs and economic growth, but all of this growth is forcing out um, long-term, so predominantly black residents. And that's the setting that Hutchinson chooses to put whitelisted in. So I think I said I would keep these lectures to about half an hour, and I think I'm about there. So I'm going to sort of go quickly through this last section so I don't keep you all longer than I said I would. But when we're talking about themes, Vincent thinks about a bunch of different social issues with this one. And something that I think is very exciting that I hope you'll enjoy about the play is she doesn't sit down and think about any of these themes. But these are themes that are present in the plot that she puts forward. And those are ideas of gentrification, like we've just been discussing in Bed Stoy, right? And that explains why our protagonist, um, Rebecca Burgess, is there. Hutchinson deals with themes of police corruption. So she's not really getting to police violence, but she's looking at, it's well documented that police corruption is sort of the foundation on which police violence can grow, right? And whether this is Officer White, who, when Rebecca, when he's, whenever he speaks to Rebecca, is like, oh, it's okay, sweetheart, like, it's going to be fine. And, but he doesn't really have any place to be saying that to her. Like, he should really not be saying, he's basically like, it's okay if you're breaking the law, because, like, you know, we're both white, is what he's saying to her. And 
his partner, Officer Black, who's a black woman, obviously is uncomfortable by this, but ultimately she doesn't say anything. And so both of those officers are exhibiting different parts of corruption within the police force. Um, there's a moment at the end when Hutchinson even touches on this idea of like blue lives. That's just a tiny drop in this whole play, but she's even touching on that. What does it mean to be a black police officer, right? Um, this play deals with medical racism, whether that's environmental factors or um, really what the character of Yvette faces in this play is this bedside medical racism where black women or black children are not believed by their doctors or their, or their doctors don't order the correct tests, right? And as a result, um, Yvette's daughter dies because this doctor sort of waved her off. Um, and we can presume, like, was this doctor white? Like, very likely. I, I'm pretty sure it's stated that he's a man. Um, so we have this idea of, like, a, a Black woman taking her child into the doctor and facing this racism where she's going for help, right? This deals with racism, especially, I think, liberal, um, white liberal racism, because I think if you ask Rebecca Burgess, our protagonist, she would say, I'm not racist. I'm, ex I'm extremely woke. Thank you. And I don't think she makes it three pages without saying something racist. Um, so Hutchinson is definitely sort of working that in there. And Hutchinson also deals with this idea of mental health stigma, especially as it connects to homelessness from the very first scene of the play, which is designed not to look like a scene of the play. And that goes all the way through until Rebecca's um, eventual fate. And that is, as I said, whew, through the themes, but I don't want to keep you longer than I said I would. So I want to conclude by mentioning that, yes, this, this play deals with a lot of really heavy topics, um, race, economics, and the police. Um, but I want to point again to Hutchinson's idea of talking about social issues by using them as tools in a plot about humans and connection, right? So I think she wants her reader or her viewer to be thinking about social issues sort of from a slant, like they, how do these big concepts that I could put in a list like this, how do they impact these people? And if they impact these people this way, how do they impact other people? So we're really looking at the story and the story is using these social themes as tools. Thank you for listening to this week's lecture on Whitelisted. I hope this lecture has got you excited to read the play if you haven't yet, or given you more information to reflect on if you've already done the reading. Take care, stay safe, and I can't wait to hear your thoughts in class on Tuesday. <laughs>